0: Welcome to kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. activists are mobilizing a campaign to support the compassionate release of Matula Shakur, an African-American human rights activist, mentor, and healer who served over 34 years in prison under the conspiracy laws known as racketeer-influenced and corrupt organization laws, better known as RICO laws. The U.S. government alleged that Shakur's political associates constituted a racketeering enterprise, aiding in the escape of Asada Shakur. Last year, Motulu Shakur was diagnosed with advanced stage 3 bone marrow cancer. His filing for compassionate release in December was denied. What's more, the Federal Bureau of Prisons has refused to release his complete medical records to his independent oncologist. As his only recourse, Shakur has now filed a petition before his original sentencing judge applying for a sentence reduction to time served, meaning immediate compassionate release. In McFarland, California, a movement of undocumented farm workers has successfully blocked the conversion of two disused prisons into ICE detention centers. The farm workers argued that the presence of the ICE prisons would terrorize their community. This week, we focus on the history of police in the United States and the concept of community policing. Alex Vitale, author of the new book, The End of Policing, shares his research about the origins of modern police and the inadequate ways that police respond to community problems. Prison abolition often focuses primarily on the prisons themselves, rather than the ways in which policing itself is a major factor in mass incarceration. Along with Vitaly's insights, we recommend our previous episodes with Christian Williams and Max Velker Cantor to further explore how police methods fuel the problem of mass incarceration and often exacerbate the community problems they aim to solve. Here he is.
1: I did not start as an academic. I was doing public policy at the San Francisco Coalition on Homelessness in the late 80s and early 90s when really the criminalization of homelessness begins to ramp up after a kind of initial period of what is this? We're, you know, mass homeless. We're trying to figure it out. Some sympathy, etc. the You begin to get the rise of what turned out to be broken windows policing, only we didn't really know none of us were police experts. And so my boss was like, well, you've been arrested before. Go talk to folks, figure out what's (laughs) going on. You've been through the court system some. So I started doing outreach and talking to folks who came into the office and whatnot. And uh, it was clear that there was this new level of harassment. And I put a team together we trained a bunch of law students and outreach workers and just volunteers uh, to do a kind of cop watch thing. And we were following the police and when they would give tickets to people, we're like, well, what's the ticket for? What were you doing? How many times has this happened? And so that allowed us to, to piece some stuff together. And my training was not in criminology or policing. I was an urban sociologist interested in housing and economic development stuff. But what became clear to me was that San Francisco and other cities had decided that they were not going to solve homelessness, that they were going to manage it through intensive and invasive policing. And so that was an eye opener for me. And I think that from that very early moment, my, you know, after we we played around with some training and procedural stuff, it's like, well... What can we do to get them to follow the law because they were violating people's rights at times, giving out tickets improperly? But what quickly became clear was that even when the police were following the law, it was still unjust. And the decision politically to turn homelessness into a policing problem was fundamentally unjust. And the solution to that is not retraining the police or trying to discipline the police for breaking up homeless encampments because that's what they were told to do. Uh, so really, uh, you know, as, as early as the early 90s, uh, thinking about policing in this different way. And over the last 30 years, really watching a series of movements kind of emerge and bust, in response to some egregious event, Rodney King and Amadou Diallo. And in my mind, there was a certain pattern, which was that, you know, there was a certain level of distrust and animosity towards the police that was nascent and largely unexpressed, Then the police do some horrible thing that gets a lot of attention that then ignites that anger into a movement, rioting, organized protests, whatever... But typically this involved a handful of community leaders, often religious leaders, but Sharpton and who's kind of a hybrid people like who would come out and make the same sort of set of demands, which is we want some black chiefs of police and we want, you know, a diversity training program and we want more community policing. And, Sometimes cities would like agree to those things and, or we want the officer involved indicted, you know, and then some of that would happen and the movement would demobilize and nothing would really change about policing. And when Amadou Diallo was killed in New York, that's exactly what happened. There was amazing outrage and people started engaging in protest activity and Sharpton steps in and gives it a form, which on the surface, seemed very radical. There were sit-ins at police headquarters that were very disruptive, that were sustained over weeks. Hundreds of people were arrested, including some elected officials and stuff. I got arrested with Jesse Jackson and, you know, the former mayor and former mayor, (laughs) David Dinkins. But what was the main demand of the movement? Well, we're going to keep getting arrested until the officers are indicted. So they indicted the officers, the protests melted away, and six months later, they're all found not guilty, and nothing changed. As a police scholar that I became through a series of unintended actions, uh, I knew that the research showed that none of these interventions that people were calling for make any difference. I mean, you could just, you knew it in a common sense sort of way if you were paying attention, but even the systematic research showed that Hiring more black police officers or giving them some kind of training program was totally pointless. So I was thinking more about, well, you know, what would the alternative look like? And there was this emerging literature and discourse around prison abolition, but I felt very little attention had been paid to policing. There was some critical police scholarship but a lot of that was bleeding into a set of these same kind of procedural reforms. Of can we just give them training to be more professional and less biased, so that the police will be accepted by the community and this kind of thing. And that deeper, more radical analysis was largely absent. You had Christian Williams's book *Our Enemies in Blue*, but that had very limited circulation. You know, and it, no one in academia knew about it. So, I had the meeting with Verso Books about this project before Ferguson happened and before Eric Garner was killed. And they wanted me to write a book about the NYPD, and I said, no, I have this other idea, but I don't know, you know, if there's any money in it, right? <laughs> they are a, they're, they're a commercial, somewhat commercial press. I thought it would be kind of a novelty for a few people who were reading. Angela Davis and stuff like that, and maybe I could get a few of them to think about policing. So obviously the situation on the ground changed. These movements have been sustained, and we have seen that people who started off asking for community policing and body cameras and indictments are now seeing that it's not working, that they either can't get it or when they do get it, it just doesn't make any difference. So we're seeing them start to look for something different, a deeper analysis. So I spent a lot of my time crisscrossing the country working with local struggles and national groups supporting local struggles about, well, what should we be asking for? So what should we be asking for? It turns out that for most of the things that police do, there are alternatives. So we have strategies for, for reducing these harms that don't involve tearing people down and and tearing communities down that involve building them up. So that's been the main focus of the book is figuring out how to do that in a very concrete way. So pointing out the harms of policing, the limits of police reform, and what it would take to actually get police out of our lives in as many ways as possible. So let's think about a few of these things. You know, we had this horrible incident in New York a couple of years ago where this middle-aged African-American woman was having a mental health crisis in her home. Police are the ones who are sent and they act like police. So they force their way in and force her into a corner and there's a scuffle and they shoot her to death. Even though the guy, a sergeant who shot her to death, had a taser. Even though he'd had special mental health and de-escalation training. You know, it just didn't matter. But our city council in New York, their big idea about, oh my God, something must be done was to have hearings on whether or not the police were getting the right mental health training. That was it. That was the extent of their analysis was because the police were already getting mental health training, but it's like, well, maybe they're getting the wrong one or maybe they're not implementing it quickly enough. And, you know, I got some calls from reporters who wanted me to like say, what's the right training? And I was like... I'm not really interested in fine-tuning the police response. I'm interested in ending it. This is one of the issues where we've made some progress, at least rhetorically. So our newly elected public advocate in New York, Giovanni Williams, actually issued a report laying out a program for getting police out of the mental health business. But the mayor, his big innovation was to go with a co-response model, which is partnering police with some kind of social worker or mental health worker. Every study shows that either it doesn't work or the few that show improvements only happen in those cities that also dramatically expand their community-based mental health services at the same time to give the teams more options, to which the obvious response is, well, what's working is adding more services, not partnering police with... Because in the cities that just do that, there's no effect. You know, again this begs this question of, well, why is the mayor refusing to take police out of the scenario? And I think there are a couple of things at work here. One is is that despite all his talk about, you know, a tale of two cities and dealing with inequality, he has accepted the basic parameters of neoliberal austerity. He has not been willing to really tax the rich. He's not been willing to to establish broad regimes of new services, except for universal pre-K, which is great, which he did like the first year and has done nothing in the following six years. This is a, a universal problem in our cities, is that urban democratic politics would have been considered conservative Republican politics 40 years ago. They have completely capitulated to the there is no alternative politics of globalization and its effect on local spaces. Well, I think it's because they believe the 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 right wing mantra that if you try to take it's not even taxing the wealthy; it's just quit giving all the tax money to the wealthy. I mean, if they could just start there, because if you look at the way uh, city governments now are structured, is that they are filled with all these incentives to those sectors of the economy that are already the most successful. So it's like Amazon. If we want Amazon to open up, we have to give them $2 billion. So it's a negative tax that we're paying to the already most rich and successful people. And that is universal. There's no questioning of that. So that's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is that they're committed to a kind of liberal legal formalism. They've accepted this idea that the law is inherently beneficial to everyone, that when the law is properly enforced, it's a liberatory thing. This is you know, classical liberal political economic theory, that the law reflects the general will and the best interests of society, and can we just get the police to follow the law? So that when they see a problem with policing... Their inclination is, how do we get the police to be more law-abiding, more integrated into these legitimate legal frameworks? And this was the same response to the riots of the 60s and protests of the 60s was, oh, well, we got to pay them more, give them more modern equipment, and get them to be more focused on law enforcement. So they come up with all these procedural reforms of more training, more money, higher standards, more accountability in some cases, at least rhetorically, implicit bias training, my favorite, totally pointless in terms of changing (laughs) policing, but implicit bias training is so popular for police leaders and political leaders because it's a way that they can say they're doing something about the race and police problem where no one is at fault, no one did anything on purpose, it's all unintentional and accidental, And can you just please shoot fewer black people in the future? (laughs) And that's the extent of the analysis, right? So that training doesn't work. The police resent the hell out of it because it implies that they are all closet racists. And in a lot of these big city departments, a majority of the officers aren't even white. You know, the racism is built into the decision to use police to solve the problems of non-white communities in exactly the way that rich white communities would never tolerate. So why this misunderstanding? Well, they have just accepted the premises of kind of liberal democracy and the rule of law. And there's this great 19th century saying that the law in its majesty forbids both the rich and the poor from sleeping under bridges stealing bread and begging in the streets but of course the rich don't need to do these things that laws those laws exist to regulate the behavior of poor people who have no place to sleep and not enough food to eat and we can see this even more plainly in the war on drugs the war on drugs is a set of legal interventions that are designed to produce injustice and we don't need narcotics units to get anti-bias training. We need to get rid of the war on drugs. That's the only way to solve that problem, because the drug laws were designed to produce racial inequality. That was the whole point. And it's not. It doesn't even require us to you know, imagine their motivations or ascribe them to them based on the outcomes. We have people from inside the Nixon White House who've come forward and said this had nothing to do with public health or public safety. Frankly, it had nothing to do with drugs. It was about a cynical politics of race designed to appeal to white Southern voters to get them to switch from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party that we were going to use drugs to signal to them that the Republican Party was going to use law and order to put the lid back on black people. It's like we can't bring back segregation anymore. We lost that battle, but we're going to use the criminal justice system instead. Of course, this is the Southern strategy. This is the stuff that Michelle Alexander and so many others have laid out so clearly. And policing becomes a central feature of this strategy. And so the challenge is getting these liberal legal formalists to see that the law does not automatically benefit everyone equally, that the law actually has always been a tool for producing and managing profound inequalities, and that the history of policing... And the history of the origins of police forces is always tied to this exact dynamic. So, a hundred years ago and a hundred plus years ago, those dynamics of exploitation and inequality were tied to things like slavery and colonialism and the rise of a mass industrial urban workforce. So, we see this in the development of the London Metropolitan Police, the first so-called first modern police force formed in 1829 by uh, created by Sir Robert Peel. Robert Bob the Bobbies. That's where the name Bobbies comes from. And he was, you know, Minister of the Interior and he comes up with this idea, what do we do? London is filled with all these displaced agricultural workers trying to find work in factories. They're going on strike. They're engaged in... Rambunctious behavior. There's starvation leading to thievery and all this stuff. So we can't just keep relying on the militia to shoot people in the streets. We need something to make the law seem more legitimate. Let's have this civilian police force to manage this rebellious population. And all the policing textbooks, you know, start the conversation with this was this amazing innovation, it was more legitimate policing by consent, but none of them, and I've gone through them, none of them talk about the job that Peel had before he creates the London Metropolitan Police. He was in charge of the English occupation of Ireland, a colonial project and he begins to experiment with what becomes policing, in part because the Napoleonic Wars are going on and he cannot get enough British troops to keep the Irish peasantry from rising up. So he's like, I got to figure out something else that's cheaper that I can do at, at home, you know, in the countryside. And so he creates the Irish Peace Preservation Force, whose main function is to be embedded enough in communities that they can anticipate agricultural outrages, as they were called, basically people lynching their landlords, destroying crops, whatever, to prevent political uprisings. And he takes that Irish peace preservation force and makes it slightly more civilian, slightly more, because it's not dealing with a colonial context anymore, and turns it into police. And we see the same dynamic... With the development of the Pennsylvania State Police, the first state police force in the United States, created in 1905. And the model, they had a problem with industrial action throughout Pennsylvania in the mines and factories and strikes and direct actions and sabotage. And they couldn't get the local police to shoot down these miners. They tried creating these private police forces, a coal and iron police, but they got into too much political hot water because they were basically Pinkertons shooting people down. So they create a state police force that would be more legitimate and more reliable. And where did the model come from? The U.S. occupation of the Philippines at the end of the Spanish-American War. And they actually took the people running that occupation and brought them to Pennsylvania to set up the state police. The same people, the same technologies, the same techniques. And of course if we look at like the Texas Rangers, they were a colonial police force designed primarily to first exterminate the indigenous population and then drive out Mexican landowners to make way for white settlement. And of course in the US we have slavery as a factor and I argue that actually the first police force in the world that fits the definition, the standard definition of a modern civilian police force, is the Charleston City Watch and Guard, which was formed in the 1780s. They got uniforms, they're professional, they're 24 hour, they're law enforcement oriented. Why are they left out of all the histories? Because their primary job was to manage a large mobile slave population. Because in the cities of the south of that period, slaves work outside the home of their owners for wages. In factories, warehouses, unloading ships, they carry little badges that say who owns them and where they're going. But there are more of these slaves than there are whites in places like Savannah and Charleston and New Orleans. So the whites are terrified about uprisings, that blacks are going to learn how to read, that they're going to organize, that they're going to become a source of crime and disorder in the streets, and the Charleston City Watch and Guard is created to manage this mobile slave population, and that then becomes the model for urban policing across the South, much more so than slave patrols, which were more informal, and, and they do bleed into what becomes rural policing, but the you know most People are living in cities by this, this point. But that history, you'll never find that in a standard policing textbook that's assigned to undergrad or criminal justice majors or even graduate students. It was a lot of work, as you know, to uncover that history. And there's still a lot we, we we're trying to figure out about this, this deeper history of the origins of policing. But today we don't have slavery. We don't have colonialism in quite this same form. We barely even have industrialization. What we have is, you know, this neoliberal, globalized economy with a very small number of winners who are plugged into the global economy and make massive amounts of money. And then a huge population of folks who have loose connections to formal work, no connection to formal work, who participate in black markets like drugs and sex work and petty theft, who are homeless who have untreated mental health and substance abuse problems, all of which are a direct result of these new systems of economic exploitation. And what do police actually do all day every day? They're not chasing bank robbers. They're managing exactly these populations so that that system of inequality can keep chugging right along without any major threats. So once you understand that that's the actual nature of policing and the nature of the legal regimes that policing is implementing, then you see why body cameras and community policing are not gonna work. Because like, what is community policing? It Sounds good, who, who could be against community policing, right? Everyone thinks they're for community policing. But community policing is deeply flawed in a couple of different ways. One is that who decides what the community is that's engaged in this community policing process? Well, it turns out that we have a pretty good idea of who constructs that community. It's the police. They choose who they are in dialogue with. And we've had some good studies, Seattle, Los Angeles, Chicago, that show that they create these police community dialogues, but they pick who the partners are. And if people become part of that, who question the basic orientation of policing, they are pushed out. They're labeled troublemakers, cop haters, and they are driven out of these conversations. What's left is landlords and small business owners and church leaders and the most conservative elements of the community. But the bigger problem is that the whole premise of community policing is that the community bring all its problems to the police for the police to work out a solution for. But that's exactly the problem. Because what tools do the police have to solve our community problems? Guns, handcuffs, ticket books, pepper spray, these are not the tools that can actually solve any of our community problems. Do they have access to mental health services? Do they have access to supportive housing? Do they have access to youth jobs? No, they don't have any of those things. And of course, drugs is a great example of that, right? That prohibitionist policies that are implemented by the police are directly responsible for so many of the harms that we associate with drug use. We have the iron law of prohibition that says that whenever we make a desired substance illegal, it becomes more concentrated and more dangerous. But the same thing is true for the opioid crisis. The overdoses are the direct result of prohibitionist policies. So we've got to replace those prohibitionist policies and we have to get police out of the drug business. Exactly the same when we talk about sex work, it's the policing, it's the prohibitionist policies that make that enable trafficking, that make violence more likely that endanger the workers, that drive them into organized criminality, etc. So the whole problem that we're trying to work against here is the idea that police are the right tool to solve these problems. In fact, they usually make these problems worse.
0: This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. Kite Line, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.